0: It was actually interesting. I, I sort of found my walk with Christ at the same time that I found my engagement in the, with the world around me.
1: There are certain times you meet people that push you a little further, stretch you a little wider, and make you think a little differently than you normally would. That is who my friend Joshua Dubois is. It's hard to explain him in just a couple words, because he's a pastor, he's a writer, he's a public speaker, a community organizer, and from 2009 to 2013 was the head of the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships under President Obama, working closely with him, as well as sending him daily devotionals through his phone that eventually became the book, The President's Devotional. Alright, so I'm here with my friend Joshua Dubois, uh, if you haven't heard of him, he led the faith-based and, uh, it was Neighborhood Initiative, right, within the White House? Neighborhood
0: Partnerships Office, Partnerships
1: yep. Office within the White House, he has a book out called The President's Devotional, which um, I usually go through uh, one of the devotionals every day on my phone, um, and he's just an all-around good, good guy, he's worked with uh, a lot of organizations, a lot of um, movies and, and, and other productions like that, so... Joshua, thanks for taking the time with us today. Um, so My pleasure. Everybody gets into kind of the stuff you've done the last four or five years, uh, well, actually ten years with, with President Obama and things. But what we want to do is kind of focus, too, on kind of where you came from, how you got to a point um, there. So just give us a brief background of you know your, your, where you were born, um, yeah. young life, things like that. Sure. Um so I
0: grew up for the most part in Nashville, Tennessee. Um that is where most of my extended family is. Oddly enough, I was born in Bar Harbor, Maine, so that's a long story. I'm happy to share, but um but grew up mostly in Nashville and it's where most of my family is. Um uh my mom and dad were were married um and then they got divorced when I was um in like just about to head into kindergarten. Um and uh, my mom eventually remarried um, a man who I really considered, you know, to be my, my core support and father to this day, um, Anthony Sinkfield, uh, who's a pastor in Nashville now. Um, I stayed um, somewhat close to my biological father, um, who had a fascinating life journey and story himself, um, but he passed away a few years ago. Um, and and uh, even though we, we uh, were not completely disconnected, um, there were... I certainly um, wish I had had even more experiences with him uh, before uh, before he died. Um, I um, uh, There was a time in between uh, when my mother and father were married and then when she got remarried where my mom was a single parent, and it was kind of a tough time for us, um, just experiences with... You know, poverty and homelessness and so forth. Um, But my mom's faith in God um, and just overall grittiness um, in the best sense, she always did it with a smile on her face, but she just made stuff happen. Um, Those were among sort of my earlier experiences that I remember just a a mom doing whatever she could uh, to make sure that her kid had what he needed. Um, One kind of anecdotal story from around that time when, you know, things were sort of tough. was my mom had an old um, Volkswagen Beetle, an orange one, um, and we were uh, we had moved from Nashville to Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, at the time, and she would split up from my dad, and, and we were pretty broken. Um, and the, she was taking me, you know, back and forth to daycare in this Beetle, um, and it had a hole in the floor, um, and uh, she convinced me that that hole was a reverse sunroof. <laughs> and so I thought I was the coolest kid in the world. I would go into to to preschool and be like, you know, bragging about my reverse sunroof in the car. So that's just the kind of person that she was, just always making lemonade out of lemons um and just trying to, you know, bring a um a, a spirit of joy um, into our lives. But, um, she then, you know, eventually married my stepfather. He, he was and is a pastor in the AME church, African Methodist Episcopal. Um, uh, he was based for a time in Nashville. Then we moved around a bunch. It's an itinerant ministry. Um, and so I moved to a number of different churches, um, over the course of my young life. Um, then I went to college in Boston, which is actually where I got saved. I wasn't saved growing up in the church, uh, which is not, not all, a lot of preacher's kids out there won't find that all too, um, uh, all too different from their own experiences. Um, but I, I came to know Christ for myself when I went to college at, at Boston University and became active and associate, and, an, and associate pastor at a small little church there in Boston. Um, then went to grad school for public affairs at Princeton uh, in University in New Jersey. Um, and then started working for Barack Obama um, pretty much fresh out of grad school um, with a lot of other experiences in between. But that, that's that's the long story short version of it, Chris.
1: Well, and it sounds like, you know, being a preacher's kid myself, um, I don't know if it, if it was like this for you, but I felt like when I was younger you did the, you know, walk up to the front and accept Jesus and do the whole baptism thing, but it's not until later in life where things kind of kick, kick in and you kind of realize... Um, where you kind of missed the mark a bit. Does that make sense? Kind of uh, where your faith has grown and, and how it's grown, and then you kind of rededicate yourself to that, uh, find find Jesus in a different way. Is, is that kind of where you were yeah, growing I, up?
0: Yeah, I, I, would say that I think that was part of it for me. I think um, part of it was, you know, the, the church that I was in, not just the local church, but the denominational church, um, there were some beautiful and wonderful things about it. It was also just, as with a lot of denomination it's very kind of political and there was bureaucracy yeah. and basically for me and this is not for everybody but for me there was a lot of things that came in between personal relationship with jesus and guidance from the holy spirit and um the the things that are the most meaningful parts of my christian walk now um and so it, a lot of that sort of got in the way also i think there was a little bit of a pressure so for not all pks but for some of us um to be, like, um, badder than everyone. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we didn't want everyone to think that we were the, the nerdy pastor's kids, and so we had to be even more rebellious than some others. Um, so I think that played into it. Um, and just also, you know, sometimes you just need to kind of have an experience with Jesus for yourself, um, yeah. it, rather than, you know, um, on, um, on the part of someone else experiencing you know, his love and, um, and guidance on your behalf. Um, and so that's, um, that, that, that didn't come for me until college.
1: For me, listening you say that, it was kind of funny because I was the nerdy preacher's kid that really never got in trouble. My sister, on the other hand, was the rebellious one. Like she took mm-hmm. everything for her and doubled it. So she took some of my rebellion that I should have had and, and did it for me. But yeah, I was that nerdy kid that, um. Always try to do the right thing. Because even when, in high school, the, all the teachers went to the church that my dad was at. And then even when I went to college, walked into college five hours from home, uh-huh. and my, my advisor was a friend of my dad's. So it's just like everywhere I went, I couldn't get, get through that part. So, so as for you accepting Jesus as a sophomore in college, kind of what was, what was that moment? Why did it change for you then? Cause yeah, pretty much. Let's be honest; like that whole moment right there, pretty set, pretty much set the path of where your life would go. Yeah,
0: it was actually interesting. I, I sort of found my walk with Christ at the same time that I found my engagement in the, with the world around me. Um, I, when I first got to, to college, I wanted nothing to do with the church. You know, I'd spent all this time in church and bible studies and choir rehearsals and so forth and just and i so i didn't attend church my entire freshman year in college i just like i wanted nothing to do with the church and also didn't want anything to do with society i was not the type of person that was active in student government or naacp or issues and advocacy and so forth i just wanted to hang out get decent enough grades in classes have you know friends date whatever you know whatever i i wanted to do um but um there was kind of a, a period where uh, sort of the, the Lord took the um, took the blinders off and um, I um, I was working – I worked full-time when I was in college, and, and um, one of my jobs was um, – actually, I was a – I worked at Craftmatic Beds. Um, older listeners may know what Craftmatic Beds is, but they used to have commercials on TV, the adjustable beds. Um, oh, and nice. So, <laughs> yeah. I can't um, see
1: you selling beds. I mean I – th- Yeah.
0: Well, I, I, I wasn't great at it, but um, <laughs> I would take the train um, – the the subway – down to the end of the green line in Boston and go to this to this office and, and try to sell beds um, on, on commission um, to, to pay for school. And um, when I was there one day, I uh, they always had the radio playing, and I uh, the news was talking about um, the, the case of a young man named Amadou Diallo. And Amadou Diallo, I came to find out listening to the news, and again, I didn't care anything about society and the news and so forth. And so it was odd that this stood out to me, but he was an African immigrant in, in New York, um, who, uh, was walking on the street one day. He didn't speak great English and police officers, for whatever reason, asked for his ID. And, um, he, uh, proceeded to, um, you know, he wasn't, he, he was trying to understand what they're saying and, and he was speaking his own language. Um, and, uh, so there was a communications disconnect, but he proceeded proceeded to just reach in his back pocket to pull out his wallet so he can give him his driver's license as it appeared that they were requesting. Um, and when they, when he was pulling out his wallet, um, the officers, I guess, felt threatened and... Um, shot him. But not only did they shoot him once, they shot him 41 times. They basically unloaded four different clips um, into this completely unarmed man. And for some reason, when I heard that story initially before the trial happened, it just rocked me. I don't know what it was, but it just kind of shook me to my core. Like I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that there was a mom out there of a kid, of a young man who was just minding his business one day. And then he didn't come home for no reason other than you know he really did did nothing and it just it, it bothered me and it just kind of shook shook me um, and so I would I was following this case um, uh, as it proceeded through the justice system and then eventually I was at work again um, months later um, when um, the verdict came back in the officers that had been tried and they were acquitted on all charges and it just broke my heart it just felt like you know, where was justice in the world and where was God in this, in that a man's life could be taken and there was no, um, recompense for that. And so I, I didn't know what to do. I, again, I didn't have an organization I didn't do anything, but I just felt just called to do something to somehow speak this man's name into the world so that somebody would notice. And so I wrote, um, his name, Amadou Diallo, on, on a piece of, uh, um, poster board. I think I got it from like CVS or store 24 or something that, um, and I stood in the middle of Marsh Plaza, um, which was sort of the central square on campus. And I said, I'm just going to stand here for 41 hours, one hour for each, um, bullet that was fired at, at Amadou. And again, you know, this was, this was not like me. I hadn't done anything like this before, but just, I, I, um, realized later it was God calling me to be there, um, and to be kind of his witness, um, for justice in a world that, um, that appeared to overlook it at that moment. And so I, I stood out there and a couple of, uh, eventually a few people started coming around and talking to me and I was able to share um, Amadou's story. Um, and then a larger crowd formed and we just sort of all came together to, to remember this, this man and to, to say that, you know, his life, um, his life had meaning to us and to God. Um, and while I was out there just to connect it to your question, um, a gentleman approached me, his name was Eugene Schneeberg. He's uh, today, um, this is the first time I'd ever met him when he approached me out there, but today he's one of my best friends in the world and uh, my prayer partner, and he was the best man in my wedding. Um, but he said, um, you know, you're, you're beginning to understand the world on some level through your protests here, um, but you need to understand it even more, um, and you need to understand powers and principalities and um, and the the eternity um, and some topics that uh, you know you won't find on the front page of the New York Times or the Boston Globe. And he invited me to church, and I said, Eugene, I I grew up in church my entire life, and I don't need to go to church anymore. And he said, This church is not like anything that you've been to before, just come and check it out. And so I went to his tiny little church, Calvary Praise and Worship Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it was just stripped bare. It was my pastor, who I still consider one of my pastors and and, um, key mentors to this day, um, just talking about Jesus, just preaching straight from the Word of God. There wasn't a three-point message. There wasn't a whole lot of shouting. There wasn't anything other than um, just um, the gospel truth and um, and in. Uh, Coming to that church, I was really introduced in a full way to Christ for the first time, and um, and that's where when I gave my life to Him. And so, kind of
1: a social awakening and a spiritual awakening right around the same time. Sounds kind of like at that moment you had like a pivot. You know, everybody has like a pivot in life where they kind of take a direction different than where they were going. Yeah. Like what I see you do now is based solely on that moment right there. You know, because for for me. When when I got to know you three years ago, I was just coming into this whole social um, piece and understanding it from other points of view instead of like a white suburb, suburban person's um, view. And I know for me, you came in at a really good time because the projects we were working on it forced me to to understand that more. And so that was I consider that even for me part of a pivot in the last three years of kind of pushing for the things that I've been doing the last three years. Um, and so it's, it's it's interesting to see that, you know, you protesting for 41 hours just basically set the the roadmap for um, where you were going and what you do now. And so with that, you went to grad school. And if you haven't read the story about how Joshua decided to try to work for, at that time, Senator Barack Obama, you can, you can tell that briefly. It was just the whole... I like the whole hamburger dive bar uh, references and your your old beat up truck and and all of that stuff. So just give people who don't know the story how you got into that because I mean it's one thing to be at Princeton grad school it's another thing to uh, basically just kick the door in at the senator's office and say hey look at me I want a job with you guys.
0: Yeah, um, it's uh, you know just kind of a God ordained type of thing. Um, I, I was working doing an internship on Capitol Hill between my first and second years in grad school and uh, was um, at a place called the Hawk and Dove. When I'm at church audiences, I say it's a restaurant, but honestly, it's a little bit more of a bar. And <laughs> uh, and was having a burger and probably a beer and um, watching the, um, the Democratic National Convention in 2004. And there was a guy that was... Um, speaking. I hadn't heard of him before. His name was Barack Obama, and he was a young state senator, not even a U.S. senator yet from from Illinois. Um, And he talked about a lot of policies that I cared about and civil rights and justice. And then out of nowhere, he started talking about the awesome God that we serve in the blue states. And I I said, my goodness, here is a progressive, someone who believes um, in fighting for justice, um, but who also understands the values and the language in the place of people of faith in America. And um, and I said, you know, my goodness, I'd like to work for him. So to make a long story short, I basically drove down from Jersey multiple times until finally um, somebody gave me an interview and I just kind of pestered them. Um, and I'm sure somewhere the Lord was pestering them as well until they gave, gave me a shot. So I started working with him um, early on in his uh, Senate career in
1: 2004. So how, how do you... How do you transition from grad school to working for a senator? Who, it wasn't long after you got that position that he he announced he's running for president. Correct. That was a couple of years.
0: Yeah, okay. I, um, yeah. He didn't announce until 2007. I started with him about two years earlier. So, yeah, he was just kind of a junior senator, um, and so you know, not nearly as famous as he is now, of course. Um, and we just did hard work. You know, I was a legislative aide, um, working on labor and trade and immigration and commerce stuff, and responding to constituent mail and going to meetings and all kinds of stuff like that. The the moment where I sort of transitioned more into becoming more uh, closer to him personally, he wanted to give a speech about his Christian faith in 2006 at Jim Wallace's conference. And he asked if there's anyone in his office that, you know, knew something about this faith thing and and would work with him and and talk to him about this. And I kind of raised my hand. And so uh, we worked together on that speech in 2006 and, um, it was a pretty significant time for me, and the first time that he gave a speech on faith as well. Um, and then uh, he, when he announced in 2007, he asked me to be his um, advisor, um, uh, an outreach lead to faith communities, and so, uh, of course, I agreed, and we developed a plan and began traveling around the country, um, engaging communities of faith, and um, explaining to them, honestly, why we thought that Barack Obama should be the leader of the free world, and you know, thank God, we had some good success there, and um, and he asked me to continue on to the into the White House to lead his faith-based
1: initiative there. All right, so so you guys work. Barack Obama is, is elected president by a pretty good margin, and you know you're moving into the White House. He he asked you to be uh, that faith um, advisor. What is the first thing that pops in your head the morning that you go to the White House the first time, like? I'd probably be freaking out, to be honest with you, and just that whole, I mean, because that's a historic thing anyway, um, but going in into that place, first thing that popped in your head the morning of the, that you go to the White House?
0: It's kind of hard to disentangle the different moments of kind of awe, you know, in those early days. Um, I, I thought about a lot of things. I thought about just how special it was that, you know, this kid who grew up without a lot in Nashville and Zeno, Ohio, and... Um, you know, would find himself to this, in that place and just grateful to be an American, grateful to God for navigating my path because I certainly couldn't have planned it. Um, I thought about the people, you know, who look like me that in, in years and decades past would only be able to, to serve food and drinks and sweep up that place and, and never have a position of, you know, advising the president in the Oval Office. And so I, I certainly thought about them um, as well. I thought that the ceilings were much lower than they looked on TV, and the hallways <laughs> were a lot narrower, and so that was kind of interesting to see. Um, but mostly, I thought we had to get to work. We had a lot to do. Um, we had a whole office to set up and get rolling, and people to hire, and agencies to advise, and the president needed advice on some, you know, some thorny issues. And so, you know, you had some time for reflection, but a lot of it was just getting to work.
1: So what? And with that job that, that you accepted with, with him, what prepared you, it's kind of a two-part question, so what com- prepared you for the job with him, and how did that position you, and, and prepare you for what you've done the last, uh, few years with Values Partnerships?
0: Yeah, I, um, I was prepared, I think, um, you know, just genetics of scrappiness from my mom I and others just kind of gave me a you know a little bit. God gifted me with the spirit of just you know even when you're scared to death, you still take that next step. You still jump and expect that the heavens will open and that you know angels will be underneath you. And so that I I, I um I I jumped out there a lot into different situations where uh, you know because of my age or background or whatever other you know I might have otherwise felt afraid. Um, I think advisors and mentors prepared me as well. One of the first things I did in the faith-based office was we created an advisory council of faith-based and neighborhood partnership leaders. Um, it's the first time they've ever had something like that in the White House. And, and so I was surrounded by some really wise people from across the spectrum, um, like Joel Hunter and Melissa Rogers and, and others who, who really um, you know, helped not only make my job easier, but, but make, helped um, the, the faith-based initiative take shape. Um, and you know, I had some good, good, good bosses and and good people to work for. You know, um, Melody Barnes, Valerie Jarrett, Cecilia Muñoz, and. David Plouffe and President Obama, um, were all extraordinarily hardworking people. They, they set the tone, Dennis McDonough and others, they set the tone. They were there before their staff. They were there after, um, they were still there after, you know, other members of the staff had gone home. And, you know, I didn't always agree with them. Americans don't agree with them on everything, but, but they worked really, really hard trying to do what they thought was right. Um, and so that was, um, that definitely helped the time just to, ha- to be working for some good people.
1: When you look back at, at your time at the White House, um, what was, like, what's that one day or one moment, if there is one, that you look back on with a lot of fondness? It doesn't have to be, like, anything big, but it's something, maybe it was a, um, I'm, I know I've seen pictures with uh, you and President Obama where you've you've always said he was making fun of your jacket in one of the hallways there, um, what is, what is something, what is a day that you look back on? And that's one of those things that you just hold on to.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's just so many, um, he definitely not only made fun of my jacket. I also, um, I often, I'm just, you know, not the sharpest dresser in the world. and so <laughs> I, I would often come into work like without my collar stays and like my, my collars and my dress shirts would be kind of sticking straight up and he'd come over and like flick them down <laughs> and stuff like that. And so, um, so the, the, those were always fun and just kind of. A little bit of a break from the regular to have the president of the United States telling you to go to Union Station and buy some college days, and so, um, so that that was that was fun. Um, there were more poignant moments. You know, I traveled with him up the side of a mountain to meet and pray with Billy Graham. At, at, at Graham's home, um, he was the first sitting president to ever visit Graham at his home. A lot of folks had come to the White House and other people had come to visit Graham after they were president, but he was the first actual sitting president to meet with with Billy Graham. And that was just an amazing moment um, and time that I'll, I'll never forget. There were some tough times, too. I stabbed him in, in, in Newtown at Sandy Hook after just a devastating the tragedy of those young people being killed there um i enjoyed working with him on speeches you know i was able to help give him scripture um for big speeches you know from his 2008 denver speech accepting the nomination to um his speech um even after i left the white house to work with him on his speech in charleston um about amazing grace and um in many other moments as well i really treasured those times um I um, you know, was with him um, at every national prayer breakfast, and we started a new Easter prayer breakfast. And so that was great to see. Um, and um, you know, uh, even the day I left formally um, at, at the White House, although I still kind of feel like I work for him, um, uh, he gave me a, just a beautiful send-off at the national prayer breakfast and um, talked about how much our relationship had meant to him. And so that was a real honor to hear from the President of the
1: United States. And so, um, yeah, those are a few things. So you go, you leave there, you start Values Partnerships, which it's a faith-based um, community organization. Um, you can say it a lot better than I have. There's even times when people ask me um, now what what we do and what you do, and we there's so many things that it's hard for me to kind of wrangle it into a yeah. couple sentences. Because Isn't I mean, it? Yeah, that's why we need a, that's why we need a new website, Chris Diggs. So we can- <laughs> Stop explaining it. <laughs> I know, it's just been... because I think but, um, it's, it's funny yeah. because with us, I started coming into this thing, you needed somebody to do Instagram posts with your parts of your book for each day. Yeah. And I think oh, that I, lasted I, that, like that, two that, weeks. That's
0: true,
1: yeah. Yeah, it lasted two weeks. And then you were like, hey, we've got this movie coming out called Selma. Here's Paramount, start working with them. I'm not going to lie to you, I was freaked out. Because yeah. I was like, oh, what do I do here? But... But you do all of this stuff with with um, community partnerships, which for me has taught me immensely more than I could ever learn just by reading a book over the last three years. So you, you transfer into that. Where Where did that idea come from? Did it come more from your time in the White House or how did that come to be?
0: Yeah, I just saw a huge gap between the private sector and foundations on the one side and grassroots communities on the other so they didn't really know how to talk to each other Um, and they both of them you know the church needed support from foundations and and could work together to to solve big problems in the world from trafficking to childhood hunger and so forth and foundations and companies needed to partner with communities of color in the church and and there weren't a lot of folks out there connecting the two and kind of helping to translate um two different sets of languages and perspectives and so we kind of stepped into that place um, that um, kind of outreach and relationship building grew into more substantive programming and actually running our own programs. And then that grew into more substantive, you know, we, we started doing outreach for TVs and, and TV shows and films, and then they asked us to start pr- helping to produce them too. And so, as you know, we just wrapped up um, producing a documentary on president Obama's legacy. We produced a, a concert um, on race in America for A&E and e um, we're part of the team that helped to get, um, uh, fences and, um, roots and so forth out into the world. Um, and so, so yeah, it's, it's grown into this really dynamic, um, awesome organization that we're just blessed to be a part of with wonderful people around, um, that, you know, much smarter than me. Um, um, and, uh. And we, on the one hand, help people engage communities of faith and communities of color around big challenges. On the other hand, we produce projects with cultural impact. And so those, are the, I think that's kind of how we summarize it, but I'm still
1: trying to work on that myself. So there's been a lot of projects that I've worked on with you that, that are like big name people and things. And is there one person in the last three years that we've done something with that you were kind of starstruck or speechless when you worked on that project well i'm not allowed to be speechless or else they won't (laughs) hire us
0: but um but yeah definitely i mean it was really cool being down in selma to film the movie selma uh it's that was just kind of amazing you know i facilitated i i I did a um me and i basically acted as oprah with oprah and faith leaders i was the one kind of like facilitating a Q&A where she asked, answered the questions and they asked the questions. Um, and that was just kind of mind blowing. It was at her home, just in her backyard. And that was just really, really cool. And a wonderful experience around her project belief, um, man, you know, God has just given us some awesome opportunities to work on some meaningful things. Um, we, we just did a and a um, you know, as a part of the work that um, we did together, Chris on, on fences where Denzel Washington, came out, and um, Viola Davis, and we helped connect them to some key African-American leaders and did, did some major events for them. Um, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of awesome experiences, um, but I love working with people that are, that are good friends, like Scott Buckout and Brandon Andrews and Chris Diggs and Amy White and Courtney Brown and my own wife, Michelle Dubois, who is the president of our company. Um, so we're having a good time.
1: So I'm going to ask you one more serious question before I just ask you off-the-wall silly questions, too. No
0: problem. And i got to wrap up in, like, five, ten minutes. You're good.
1: Uh, What would you say for for people coming into this racial reconciliation thing, and as we're moving, trying to figure it out, especially with the new president and the new issues that have uh, arisen even in the last three weeks, what would you say to people just coming into this, kind of to help them along the road? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, sure. I would
0: say absolutely. I think it's a great question. One, I would say thank God for anyone who's interested in the work of reconciliation. And I think that we need more reconcilers out there. And so that's a wonderful thing and they should be affirmed for that. Um, the second thing I would say is any reconciliation between anybody has to start with knowing the other person's story and knowing fully your own story as, as well. And a lot of times, um, well-meaning attempts at racial reconciliation. I want to skip right ahead to today and to say, you know, let's how can we get better right now without fully understanding where we've been. And, and, you know, this is the history of race in America is our American story. It's a huge part of it. And so I would say. Um, it's incumbent to 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 do your best to understand that history. Pick up Ta Nehisi Coates or read his article in the Atlantic um, called "The Case for Reparations." You can read a piece I wrote in Newsweek called "The Fight for Black Men." You know, pick up W. B. Bois. Um, uh, understand the history of race in this country all the way up until the present day. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to stop the work of reconciliation while you're doing it, but but come into that work with a with a fair amount of humility and saying, you know, sometimes African Americans and other groups they they, it just doesn't feel right to just skip right ahead to how do we get better right now without just like you wouldn't you wouldn't walk in if you had a problem with a family member um you know and it was a mixed issue at that some things are your fault some things are their fault some things are nobody's fault you you would first if if you really want to move forward that other person would need to know that you you saw them you knew their story you knew what what the deal was, not that you were just coming into it trying to, you know, just kind of gloss gloss over, um, you know, the, the, the real lives and histories that, that you've lived. And so that, that's a, that's what I would say is take history seriously and bone up on each other's
1: stories. All right, so rapid-fire questions to end. You say you're a Boston sports fan, so does that mean you're a Celtics fan?
0: I was a Boston sports fan. I have a legitimate um, – I have a absolutely legitimate and I'm I'm like justifying myself here. <laughs> Slowly over time I have transitioned into a DC sports fan. I've made this place in my home. I live Good. in Maryland now. I've been here for um, over well over a decade and and so I am a bona fide Redskins fan. And and the reason why you know that's real is because it, that's kind of the worst thing to be. Oh sometimes. yeah. Oh, and and crazy. so I, I I about eight years ago I said I'm gonna be a Redskins fan and I stuck to it um and that's where I, where I am now
1: and that's that's gotta hurt every year but at least you have you know you have the Wizards there which is you yeah, have the
0: Wizards yeah, yeah and, actually
1: and playing things, well. my,
0: my dad worked for Fellowship of Christian Athletes for a long time and he took me to see Daryl Green like er like when I was like seven years old so there's a Redskins piece that goes way back to um and so uh, love for him in my heart um but you know, there's some things we got to do to, to get better. Although Kirk Cousins is a strong believer, so before you hate on the Redskins, just
1: know that it's kind of like hating on Jesus. <laughs> all right, <laughs> next, next one, top three, top three hip-hop albums ever.
0: Sure, happy to, to give the definitive word on that, that no one should ever argue with. So first um, is uh, Outcast Outkast ATLians, okay. uh, is the number one hip-hop album of all time. Um, have you ever seen them live? Uh, I have not seen Outkast. I've, I've seen Big Boy live in Atlanta, but not with Andre. Man, uh, I got to
1: see them live here at Forecastle like three years ago, four years ago. I stood for five hours in the same spot just so I could be close to the stage to see them for like wow. a two-hour concert.
0: Yeah, I um, I, I, I definitely want to see both of them together. Um, the second Nas Illmatic yeah. um, is you know. To easy one, a lot of people will pick that, but it's it's just really hard to dispute. Um, and then the third one will get a little murky. There's an argument that I would make for Scarface. Um, I that's kind of off the wall, but I I I think he's brilliant. I think Common could be up there with Resurrection or One Day It All Makes Sense. I think Most Deaf Black on Both Sides. It gets it gets a little difficult. I mean, you got to at least have a conversation about Tupac. Um,
1: yeah, but you have to have the conversation about Biggies. Ready to Die no, album.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess, uh, yeah. Re- Ready to Die and Life After Death are both brilliant. I will. I, I I'm a true hip hop nerd, and so for anyone out there that just wants a, a blessing, um, there w- there's a Biggie album that was remixed with the Star Wars soundtrack <laughs> uh, um, called Life After Death
1: Star, and it's amazing.
0: Um, so check that out. Google it. But
1: yeah. So so there's our questions with Joshua. Joshua. Go get his book, The President's Devotional. You can find it on um, Amazon because I do everything on Kindle because I refuse to carry anything. So you can buy Kindle there. Um, he's all over Newsweek, Huffington Post. If you go to his website, joshuadebois.com, I built it. Don't worry about some of the things that we're still tweaking with. But um, you can see some of his articles, uh, some of his TV interviews uh, in the last, I guess, year. It's probably probably safe to say. And then uh, follow him on Twitter at – what's the Twitter handle? At Joshua Dubois. At Joshua Dubois.com – or Joshua Dubois. So follow him there. Chris,
0: thanks for having me, man. I can't say enough about Chris Diggs and and the Haymaker uh, creative um, approach to just being awesome. Uh, Chris has not only saved our butts many, many times, but has also become a real dear, dear friend. So anyone out there, keep listening to this podcast. Share it. Spread the word hire him for amazing design work and just overall know that this is
1: awesome. Perfect. Thanks. I'll I'll, uh, I'll give you a discount on your next bill. I appreciate it. Well, as
0: soon as we hang up, we're going to talk about our next project. Yep. So.
1: Perfect. <laughs> All right, man. All right, we're good. Thankful for my friend Joshua Dubois who took some time out of his day-to-day uh, to, to hang out and talk with us a bit and kind of show us how one moment of even just standing in the middle of a town square protesting something that you feel strongly about can lead to God opening doors in, in crazy ways. So thanks for joining us. We, we do these every two weeks with Fort Cornelius. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, check out wearemorethan.org. We post blogs all of these and uh, we got some pretty cool merchandise you might like so we are more than dot org